0: So let me pray as we do that. Um, Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this passage and for uh, what it can teach us, how it can challenge us, how it can encourage us. And I pray that it would do those things uh, in us today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, probably close to 15 years ago, I went on a trip with my church that I was at at the time to a city in far southeastern Turkey. Uh, All the way is basically about an, an... maybe an hour from uh, the borders of both Iraq and Syria. So this is as far east as I've ever been in my life. And uh, we were going there to help a church that was there, uh, but you weren't allowed, It's actually illegal, I don't know if it still is illegal now, but at the time it was illegal to do any kind of evangelism. So you couldn't go there and talk to people about Christ. You weren't allowed to do that. So the only way we could help the church was uh, to help them do some practical things. And so... Uh, They had us uh, doing some work on their building and building, uh, you know, like a shade for the sun uh, in the summertime there because it gets really hot. And uh, when we arrive there in the city, we get to the church, and uh, the church is behind uh, a really tall, like probably 10-foot tall fence. And to get in the building, the the local police had actually put an armed guard at the door of the church. And so you were not uh, able to go inside without the armed guard, like, checking you out and letting you in. And uh, that is because in that part of the world, uh, they were probably the only Christian church within four or five hours drive. They're the only church in that whole part of the world. And uh, there's quite a bit of animosity towards Christians in that part of the world. And not only was there an armed guard at the door, at the gate to the church, but the pastor of the church had a 24-hour police uh, escort who would go with the pastor everywhere he went uh, because it wasn't safe to be a Christian leader in that part of the world. Um, that really struck me. I'd never seen or experienced anything like that. It made me a little bit nervous, actually. Uh, I was like, are we going to be okay walking around the city? Because um, I definitely stick out um, most places I go, but certainly there. Now, what's going on at the start of this passage that we're looking at today is, is actually quite similar. In fact, it's, it's worse because the earliest Christians, they didn't have the local government to protect them, to look after them, uh, to defend them. And when you read about the kind of suffering that is happening in this passage, you might say, you might read that and say, where is God? Like, we've seen him do all these extraordinary things up to this point, and now it seems like, like has he left them? Does he even care? Does he, does he have the power to do anything about it? And if he does, why doesn't he do something about this suffering that they're experiencing? And of course, you might be asking similar questions about your own life, you know, if you're a Christian... Perhaps you're wondering, where is God in the midst of your own trials, in the midst of your own suffering, your own weaknesses, in the areas of your life where you feel like you're lacking? Or maybe if you're not a Christian, like maybe you look at this and you say, there's the proof, see? There it is right there. Uh, This fact that there is suffering says there's no God. Uh, There's no personal, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God in heaven. Um, And if he is there, um, then, then he's not doing anything about it, so I wouldn't want to worship him anyway. So that might be what you're thinking when you come across a story like this. And listen, I'm sure that you've heard all the sayings like uh, you can't make a diamond without pressure. You heard that? Uh, or you can't make an omelet without cracking a few eggs, You know, or uh, no pain, no gain. Uh, my favorite one, no such thing as a free lunch. I've had a few free lunches, so I don't know. These are usually pretty trite responses to a person's suffering. Like we kind of pull those out when we don't really know what to say to somebody when they're going through something hard. Uh, and so, you know, they're, and when you're suffering, those are the last things. You don't want to hear that. You don't, don't tell me no pain, no gain. Don't tell me you can't make an omelet without cracking a few eggs. You don't want to hear that, especially if your suffering is great. And yet there is a truth to the idea that most great things that have happened, that have been discovered, that have been invented, most great personal transformations that have happened in people's life, almost all of them have come as a result of or through suffering of some kind. And so though suffering is awful, and though a person shouldn't in most circumstances seek out suffering, the general principle remains in life that oftentimes out of suffering comes something good. Out of suffering comes an improvement. Out of suffering comes some kind of advancement. And that is precisely what we see happening in this passage. And what we see here is that even when there is tremendous suffering, God is still at work. He is at work in profound ways that on the surface, we often miss it. And there's so much going on in this passage I mentioned before, we're actually going to take two weeks to cover it. Uh, so we're really only looking at the first five verses and the last one today, and all that stuff in the middle about the sorcerer we'll get to next week. But what we see in the whole passage is God at work in four distinct ways, four different types of work. Um, there's his hidden work, there's his visible work, his, God's inner work, and God's spreading work. And uh, the way we're going to do this is actually work from the outside in. And so this week we're looking at numbers one and four, his hidden work, and his spreading work, and uh, next week we'll look at numbers two and three, the ones in the middle, his visible work and his inner work. So let's just start with God's hidden work uh, and look at verses one to three again, because if you read only that, like if that's all you read, you might conclude that God has completely abandoned these, uh, these very first Christians, because it starts out in verse one saying, on that day. Now what's the day that, that's being talked about here? Uh, what it's talking about is the day that Stephen was martyred. If you remember this from a few weeks back uh, Stephen was, was uh, martyred. He was brutally killed by stoning, uh, which is a horrible way to die. And this is saying that on that very same day, the day that Stephen was killed, uh, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And then look at how Luke characterizes that persecution down in verse 3. He says, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And where it says there that Saul began to destroy the church, the word there for destroy, in some of the old translations, it actually says Paul wreaked havoc on the church. But even that's not strong enough for the the idea that that Luke is trying to get across here. Uh, Because the word in the original language is actually the word that would be used for a wild animal that is tearing apart its prey. And so the picture here is that the church is being torn apart by this man named Saul, is being torn apart limb by limb. And in verse 1, it says, it's so bad that all but the apostles had been scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So they all had to flee. And so if you read just verses 1 to 3, and you see this scattering and this persecution, you might think, well, okay, yeah, see, God's abandoned them. He's not at work. However, read on into verse 4, and what you begin to discover is that God is doing a hidden work. Because verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And I love Luke's choice of words here because the word there for scattered uh, is not the normal word that you would use there. He actually uses an agricultural term for, for scattering seed, like a farmer spreading seed on the field. Which gives off the image of seeds of the gospel being planted throughout Judea and Samaria that will one day grow up and bear fruit. And so we're going to come back to that idea near the end. But for now, just notice what's happening here. All the way back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus is recorded as saying to the apostles, Acts 1.8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But up to this point in the story, Jesus' witnesses, they hadn't left Jerusalem. They're all still there. The whole church, they're all still in Jerusalem. And so here's what this is saying. When we get to our passage, what it's saying is the suffering is what is causing the spread of The gospel that Jesus' commission for the church is being accomplished because of suffering. And what Luke is doing here is he's actually presenting a deep theology of suffering. Essentially what he's saying is, in spite of what it seems on the surface, suffering, God is doing a hidden work, which is redeeming that suffering for good. What one person or group of people intend for harm, God intends for good. That's, uh, there's a way that uh, the Apostle Paul, who ironically is the very same person who is leading and causing the persecution in the church and the story, uh, but later he becomes a Christian, and he, uh, there's a way that he actually presents this idea, uh, this, this multi-dimensional understanding of suffering, uh, the hidden work of God in the midst of suffering. And In the book of Romans, in chapter 8, verse 28, it's one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Uh, you probably have had this one quoted at you when you're going through suffering. But right in the middle, Paul's talking about suffering, and right in the middle of all that discussion about suffering, he says, we know that in all things, and when he's talking about the all things, he's talking about suffering. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so in other words, what that's saying is the Bible's theology of suffering is not One-dimensional. A one dimensional view of suffering would be that suffering is bad and only accomplishes bad things. That's one dimension of suffering. But that is so far from the Bible's theology of suffering because the Bible's view of suffering is multi dimensional. So, on the one hand, it teaches that all suffering is bad, all suffering is a result of sin and the fall. Uh, and it, as it's in our power, we should avoid suffering, and most certainly, we should not cause the suffering of others. But on the other hand, the Bible also teaches that God redeems suffering in order to accomplish good. And so that's what's happening here in this passage. The immense suffering of the church in Jerusalem, which is bad, is causing the spreading of the gospel uh, that is saving the lives of people in Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the whole earth, which is good. And this theology of suffering, it's first introduced way back in the first book of the Bible, actually all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when sin enters into the world. But it's introduced through a story uh, in the life of Joseph. And and so it's a really good picture of the hidden work of God. And so the story goes like this. Joseph had some older brothers who hated him. And so one day they captured him and they threw him in a pit. And then they sold him off as a slave uh, in Egypt. And if that wasn't bad enough... Uh, While he's a slave in Egypt, he's actually framed for rape, which he didn't do, and so then he's thrown in prison. And you get this spiral of Joseph's life getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And what's striking about the story is that all the while, Joseph seems to have a vibrant relationship with God, that every step along Joseph's tragic life, he seems to mention God and how he wants to please God. And yet, Joseph goes through immense suffering. And through an amazing turn of events, Joseph, he's not only led out of prison, but he actually becomes the second in command of Egypt, which is the greatest nation in the world at that time, effectively becoming the second most powerful person in the whole world. And in that position, he saves the entire country and some neighboring countries from dying of a famine. And so therefore, God very specifically used Joseph to save several nations and Ironically, his own family, his own brothers, the ones who, tried to, who sold him off to slavery, he, God uses them to save these people from horrible death. And so later in life, because of that famine, Joseph he's reunited with his brothers, the ones who sold him off into slavery. And when they find out it's Joseph, they're actually afraid that Joseph is going to retaliate, that he's going to punish them for what they did. Uh, and then their father dies, and the brothers assume, okay, now Joseph is going to pay us back for causing all of this horrible suffering in his life. But Joseph has more than uh, has a multi-dimensional view of suffering, and so here's what he says to them in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. To the the brothers who sold him off into slavery and sent his life on a downward spiral, he says, "You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done—the saving of many lives." And so here's what that means. One way to look at Joseph's life is to say that God was absent for all those times that Joseph was suffering, that God only showed up near the end. That's a one-dimensional understanding of suffering. But that's not the way Joseph sees it. Joseph sees his suffering as multidimensional, and so Joseph sees it as God was there the whole time. God was there working the whole time, but he was doing hidden work. God was hidden, but he was in complete control the entire time. And just think about the deep theology of suffering that's being presented there. Two dimensions of suffering. One dimension is the harm that Joseph's brothers intended. The other dimension is what God intended to redeem Joseph's suffering, the saving of many lives. And so here's the theology then spelled out. Uh, According to the Bible, God is sovereign and he is in control. And at the same time, human beings have free will and are completely responsible for their actions. And yet God in his sovereign and loving power will often redeem the sinful actions of human beings in order to accomplish his good purposes. So was it right, then, that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery? Was that good, because it did this amazing thing? No, of course not. That was a horrible thing. And his brothers are totally responsible for their actions. Nobody forced them to do it. It was their own free will. And while God is not responsible for the evil done to Joseph, God used what others intended for harm and turned it for good the saving of many lives. And so there it is, the deep theology of suffering in narrative form, and that is just like our story in Acts chapter 8. What Saul intended for harm, persecuting and killing these Christians, God used for good the spreading of the gospel across Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and saving many lives. And so God's hidden work is the redeeming of suffering in order to accomplish good. He redeems the negative actions of those who cause the suffering to turn that suffering into something that is good. And that's what's happening in this story. Both dimensions of suffering are at play. And both dimensions are at work in your life too. And because of that, I want to say three things about that before we move on. In Joseph's case, Joseph actually got to look back on his own life. So he got to look back and reflect on all the things. uh, And uh, in Joseph got a perspective. He got a reason for his suffering. Uh, A reason for his suffering that was satisfying. He could look back and say, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. But we don't always get that. That's not always the way it goes. Uh, We don't always get to see God's hidden work. Some of our suffering is like Job. Job suffered immensely. He lost everything. Uh, He lost his family. He lost his home. He lost his business. He lost his friends. He lost his health. He lost everything. And eventually God redeems it. Eventually God brings all of it back and then some. And yet you read to the end of the book of Job and he never gets to find out why. He never gets to know. And so some of our suffering is like that. Which means we need to learn like Job to trust that even though, even though sometimes God's work is hidden from us, he is still at work. He is working all things together for our good according to his good purposes. That's one thing I want to say about suffering. But the second thing is, is what do you do? How do you, how do you endure? How do you go through the suffering? Uh, and I think the way to do that uh, is to pray like the psalmist pray. Uh, in Psalm 90, there's a great example of this. Uh, we'll put it on the screen for you. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And then he says, Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, what is that prayer? What kind of prayer is it? That is a lament. It's a prayer of lament. It's the kind of prayer that says to God how you're really feeling. You cry out to him and you say, how long, O Lord? This is what I'm going through. And at the same time, you notice the psalmist is recognizing the power and the ability for God to deal with it and to redeem it. And so this kind of prayer holds in tension the Bible's two dimensions of suffering. That on the one hand, our suffering is painful. And on the other hand, in spite of our suffering, God is at work. And this prayer in verse 15, it actually has the hope of redemption. I love verse 15. It says, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. And of course, the promise for the Christian is not just as many days as, uh, or years of gladness as our days of affliction, but an eternity of gladness when this life is over. That we have an eternity of that. Now, the third thing I want to say about suffering is that for the Christian, you never suffer alone. You never actually suffer alone if you're a Christian. And the reason you never suffer alone is because God himself suffered. At the very core of Christianity, actually is suffering. Because God, in the person of Jesus Christ, he suffered excruciatingly. And if you think about it, this, the main symbol of Christianity, the cross, is a picture of Suffering. Excruciating suffering is at the very center, the very heart of what Christianity is. And in a sense, the cross itself, Jesus' suffering was hidden work. Because on the surface, what looked like a defeat, what looked like God being absent, was actually God accomplishing the saving of many lives. The cross of Christ is how God accomplished salvation. His punishment, his excruciating suffering, his death, is what pays for your sins and for my sins. And so at the very center of Christianity is suffering. And by the way, Jesus also prayed a lament. One of the very last things that Jesus said before he died, he quoted a a psalm of lament. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is Psalm 22. And so if God himself, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, if he can pray a lament... How much more can you and I? So that's part one, and there's only two parts today. Remember, there's four parts to what we're looking at. There's God's hidden work, his visible work, his inner work, and his spreading work. And we're working from the outside in. And so next we're going to look at the last part, God's spreading work. Now, I'm saying it's from the outside in because at both the start and the end of this passage, we see very clearly that God is at work spreading the gospel across the world. We already saw that in verse 4. It said those who had been scattered... Preach the word wherever they went. We also see it starting in verse 5, where we get a detailed story of what some of that looked like, uh, which we'll look at next week. But then at the very end, in verse 25, it says, After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. And so I want to think about this in three ways. There's who are they preaching to, what are they preaching, and how is it that they're preaching? And so first, who is it that they're preaching to Well, in verse 1, we see that they're scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, and then down in verse 25, it says, Peter and John preached the gospel in many Samaritan villages. And if you don't already know this, uh, to really uh, get the full impact of what's going on here, you need to know uh, that Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Uh, They were cultural, political, religious, and ethnic enemies. Uh, And so, so much so that Israel at the time, had a, they had a north and a south, and Samaria's in the middle. So that's the map that's up there right now. And so uh, down in the south is Jerusalem, and that's where the church started. Uh, and then up in the north is Galilee. Uh, and so if you wanted to get from the south of Israel to the north, or vice versa, uh, most Jews would travel around Samaria. So they'd cross the Jordan River and go around it rather than the direct way through. Uh, that's how much of rivals they had become. Uh, and so they would just try to avoid it and take the long way around. And thinking about that reminded me of something that John Steinbeck wrote in his book, Travels with Charlie, uh, which is In Search of America. It's a travelogue about a cross-country journey that John Steinbeck took in a pickup truck with his dog. Um, Honestly, life does not get more American than that, a man in his pickup truck with his dog. Uh, But he said something kind of similar about going through Texas uh, or actually wanting to avoid going through Texas. And so for you Texans here, and I know there's quite a few of you, these are his words, not mine. And so what I want to say is don't shoot the messenger, and I really mean that because you're Texans, so you're probably carrying. <laughs> and uh, so this is Steinbeck talking about Texas. I'm glad I hear some of the Texans laughing, so. It's a nervous laughter, but they're laughing nonetheless. Okay, here, yeah, <laughs> y'all are gonna go out back. Uh, okay, here, here's what Steinbeck said. He said, when I started this narrative, I knew that sooner or later, I would have, I would have to have a go at Texas and I dreaded it. I could have bypassed Texas about as easily as a space traveler can avoid the Milky Way. It sticks its big old panhandle up north, and it slops and slouches along the Rio Grande. Once you're in Texas, it seems to take forever to get out, and some people never make it. <laughs> and he goes on. I love this. He goes on. Uh, this is more self-indulgent for me. This is nothing to do with the point of this. So, uh, but He says, like most passionate nations... So you like that, Texans. Like most passionate nations, Texas has its own private history based on, but not limited by, facts. <laughs> the tradition of the tough and versatile frontiersman is true, but not exclusive. It is for the few to know that in the great old days of Virginia, there were three punishments for high crimes. Death, exile to Texas, and imprisonment, in that order. <laughs> And some of the deportees must have descendants, so they're <laughs> So apparently how Steinbeck feels about Texas is how Jews felt about Samaria. That's the whole point of that. Uh, and so there's all kinds of reasons for that animosity between Jews and Samaritans, uh, which we're not going to get into, but suffice it to say the reasons were cultural, political, religious and ethnic. Uh, and to illustrate that animosity, there's a story in the Gospels where Jesus, very surprisingly, is in Samaria with his disciples. And after Jesus and his disciples experienced some of that animosity, one of the disciples, John, he says this. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, in Luke chapter 9. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, and that was some animosity coming from the Samaritans towards they who were Jews, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? (laughs) So animosity met with animosity. And it's important to note verse 55, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. So Jesus was having none of that, so just so you know. But here's what I love about that story and about our passage today. Did you notice who it was that asked Jesus if they could call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans? It was James and John. And look back at Acts chapter 8 in verse 25. Did you notice who it is who with, now with great gladness is passing through all the Samaritan towns and villages? John. The very same person. And so something has changed in John. And of course, the main thing that has changed in John is that he himself has received the gospel. And not only that, but he's actually seen on the day of Pentecost where people from, uh, it says, every nation under heaven became Christians. And as we'll see in next week's passage, many Samaritans becoming Christians. And so through that, what John has seen now is that the gospel is for everyone. Everyone. And therefore, the Christian has no excuse whatsoever to keep the the gospel message back from any person, no matter their cultural, religious, political, or ethnic background. And this is what John has experienced. And in fact, the Christian has a mandate then to gladly take the gospel to the ends of the earth, which includes those who are culturally, religiously, politically, and ethnically very different from them. And so that means to Republicans and Democrats, to Muslim, Jews, Hindus, atheists, to hipsters and bikers and yuppies. Is that a term anymore? Yuppie? I don't know. The old, the young, the middle-aged, boomers, Gen Z, millennials, Gen X. That the gospel is for every single person, every kind of person. And what this shows us is there is not a person on earth for whom the gospel is not good news. And so that's who they're preaching to. Now, secondly, what is it that they're preaching? Well, of course, what they're preaching is the gospel. And actually, only in one place does our translation here have the word gospel. But the word is there in this entire passage three times. Uh, It's in verse 4 where it says preached. Uh, It's the same word in verse 12 where it says preached. And then, of course, you can see the word. It says preach the gospel down in verse 25. And each time you see that, it's the same Greek word. I don't normally bore you with the actual Greek word, but in this instance, it's helpful to see the progression of the word. Okay, So the word there in Greek is euangelizo, which I know I'm, tra- I'm saying wrong. My wife, who speaks Greek, is mocking me right now in her heart. But it's the word euangelizo. And if you were to transliterate that word, which is basically take it that word and just turn it into an English word without giving any meaning, it's the English word translated, uh, transliterated. It's the word evangelize. But if you take that word and you translate it, like what's the meaning of that word, translate it, that's the word gospel. And if you were to define the word gospel, the word literally means good news. So did you follow the thread there? So it's euangelizo, which is the word evangelism, which means ultimately gospel, which means to share the good news. But Luke wants us to know he's not talking about just any good news. It's specifically the good news about Jesus Christ dying for our sins and rising from the dead. In verse 4, uh, they are evangelizing, they are sharing the good news that is, in verse 4, the Word. In verse 5, it's, he defines it a little bit more, it's the Word about Christ. In verse 12, it's actually the name of Christ. And then all the way down in verse 25, he wraps it all up, summarizes it all up, and says they preach the gospel. And so what they're offering as they go around and share this good news is not some kind of self-help, it's not, here's three ways to improve your life, It is actually the good news about God himself coming to earth to deal with people's suffering. These are people who are suffering and they're going out and saying, God has come to deal with your suffering. And the way that he deals with it is he suffers, excruciating suffering. But this is what they tell them, he doesn't suffer forever. He is raised from the dead. His suffering has ended, which means that anyone who is trusting in Christ, their suffering too will end. And so this is the good news. The good news is that Jesus rose from the dead. His suffering has ended. And so therefore, your suffering can end as well. That is what they're preaching. That's the good news. And that is good news for everyone. It doesn't matter their their religion. It doesn't matter their ethnicity. It doesn't matter. It's good news for everyone. But then lastly, look at how they're preaching. And how they're preaching uh, we said before, is like seeds scattered on the ground. And we've talked about the word for preached in verse 4, and so you know that word now. It's euangelizo, it's evangelism, it's the gospel. That's the word in verse 4. But actually the word for preached uh, in verse 4 is very distinct from what Philip does in verse 5. In verse 4 it has the idea of spreading the word about something, sharing news, like sharing news with your neighbor or a coworker or a family or, you know, somebody near you. Just you having a conversation with somebody. But in verse 5, it's actually the word for proclaim. The idea there is to publish, it's to herald, it's to announce openly and publicly. In other words, what it's talking about is actual preaching. And so how is it that they're preaching? Well, they're doing it in two ways. In verse 5, there is the formal preaching of the word, not unlike what I'm doing right now, giving a prepared speech in a formal setting. That's what Philip is doing. But in verse four, there is the informal preaching of the word, much more like a conversation over a meal, or as you're working, or as you're walking. And so two implications from this, and they're only implications because the passage actually only implies this. But number one, notice that notice this that every Christian went out on mission. Every every single person went out on mission, it says. It wasn't just the apostles. In fact, if you notice, the apostles are actually the the only ones who stayed in Jerusalem. Now, they didn't stay there out of fear. They stood there out of courage, I think. Uh, But they, uh, they stayed in Jerusalem. But the implication of the passage is that everyone else went out. And it says that everyone went and shared. And this is where I think the distinction that Luke makes between what Philip does and what the other believers do is important. Because not everyone gets up in front of a crowd and formally preaches. Not everyone is called to do that. But everyone is called to evangelism. Everyone does share the good news in one way or another. Which leads to the second implication, and it's this. It cannot be, if you read this passage, it cannot be that God wants you to be quiet about Jesus. Now, it seems we've come a long way from talking about suffering to now talking about evangelism. (laughs) But remember what we're really looking at are the four ways we see God working in this passage. And where we started was talking about God's hidden work. And so actually, yes, you're sharing the gospel. It actually could bring about suffering in your life. So you might need that as you go out and share the gospel. It might lead to some kind of suffering, but probably not to be killed or imprisoned. Probably more like some shame or maybe a loss of friendship or some animosity in your family. But it's actually probably less than you're imagining as well. But also, we saw in a passage a few weeks ago, um, Jesus actually said that his Father and he are always at work. And what he's talking about there is his hidden work. God's always working. And here's the thing, you have no idea what is going on in the inner life of most people. I mean, let's be honest, you barely have any grasp of what's going on in your own inner life, let alone somebody else's inner life. But it's the inner life where God usually does his hidden work. And it might be that God appointed you for such a time as this to share with someone who God is already at work in their inner life. He's doing a hidden work in their heart, in their mind. And in fact, the person might be asking the question, they might be going through suffering, they might be asking the question, where is God? Does he even care? And then there you are. In that moment, in that time and place, to talk to them about God's love for them. And so you get to be involved in God's hidden work as you're doing his spreading work. And so not every one of us is called to the kind of preaching that Philip did. But every single one of us is called to the kind of preaching, the sharing of good news that the rest of the believers did. And one of the best ways I've ever heard that described uh, or put is that it should be like gossip. You know how gossip works. Uh, usually, uh, it starts by somebody sharing some news, and usually it's, it's not good gossip, um, but I think you'll get my point. One person, the gossiper, says to another person, hey, did you hear the news about so-and-so? Did you hear what they did? And the other person says, what? No, really? What happened? And then there you are sharing the news. Well, that's what all the Christians seem to be doing in Acts chapter 8 going out and sharing the news. Hey, did you hear the news? That somebody was killed and, and was risen from the dead? And he did that so he could take care of your suffering, so he could overcome your sin. That's just gossip. Gossip about Jesus. So there you go. Sanctified, condoned gossiping. You can all go be gossipers. And as we endure our suffering, as we endure our trials, our persecutions, as we gossip the gospel, we are experiencing and taking part in both the hidden work and the spreading work of God. And that is something for each and every one of us. Uh, next week, we'll look at the middle to the visible work and the inner work. But for now, let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for this insight into the ways that you work Lord, thank you that we can see that even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of going through severe trial and difficulty, you are still at work. And so for that, we say thank you. And Father, we ask also that you would involve us in your spreading work, that more and more people in our city would hear the gospel uh, just because we're out sharing the news. And so Lord, give us those opportunities And Lord, let us rejoice as we see uh, and experience people coming to faith in Christ. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.